When I graduated from high school, I got the cliche grad gift du jour, a set of luggage as nice as my parents could afford, perhaps a bit more than they could afford, a whole set and a small trunk to boot. The message was clear. Been nice having you, but it's time to move on. It wasn't callous. It wasn't cruel. It, it just was. As the oldest of six in what today would be considered a really small house, my bed was needed for the next one up. My food was needed for the next hungry mouth requiring more. Times were different when our son graduated from high school. He, we did not get him a set of luggage. For at least part of his grad gift, the part that meant the most to us, we gave him something that took LaDonna significant time to make and was created with a heart full of love and a lot of thought. LaDonna had developed a bit of a hobby business as a photographer and, and became an earlier adopter of digital photography. She was falling in love with digital photo editing and page layout and creating digital photo albums. And she went through all of our old photo albums and photo stacks in boxes to cull all the pictures of our son in our family and to create a digital album of the story of his life to that point. In the process, the the kitchen table, the dining room table, and multiple coffee tables had groupings of pictures on them as she chose just the right ones for this book. I thought of that album several weeks ago for two reasons. Number one, because as we're going through the book of Revelation, I remembered some of the choices LaDonna made and, and occasionally even asked my opinion about or sought my affirmation for. Overall, in a general sense, the album was arranged chronologically, but... Some things were best portrayed thematically, like, like the double-page layout of his basketball story from his grade four development league to his high school fourth-place provincial tournament team. There was the double-page spread of his wakeboarding from his awkward first attempts to his high-flying antics as an older teenager. That, that's sort of like the book of Revelation. Overall, it's mostly chronological, but not always. It's like a well-thought-through photo album or art gallery, as we've said before, in which some of the things are best portrayed thematically, like the chapters we come to today. I remembered that album for another reason, a reason that is also related to the book of Revelation, especially our section today. We had a very distinct purpose for that album as a grad gift, you see, our children, as you may know, are adopted. And we wanted our son as he left home and as the questions of who am I really become more intense as a young adult, as he processed his story and chose his story, we wanted him to be able to come back to that book and remember the family to which he belonged. You see, we realized that the two big questions he would deal with were, number one, what story will I choose to live in? And then number two, how do I live in it well? You see, over and over again, at least daily, we have to choose our story wisely. Today we come to one of those thematic double-page spreads in the animated photo album that is the book of Revelation, a vision that wraps up one of the major themes in the entire biblical story and reminds us that there really are only two stories we can live in. 
You see, sometimes we allow ourselves to struggle way more than we have to with choices, with, with issues, with how we think about what is happening to us and what is not happening to us. The reason we struggle so much is because we don't process well the prior issue. What story am I choosing to live in? Many, perhaps most of our hard decisions and conflicting perspectives about how I should process something are much clearer when we ask the first question. Before we ask, what should I do or how should I see this? We need to ask the prior question, what story am I choosing for my story? That doesn't mean it will be an easy thing to live it out, but it does mean the choice is a whole lot clearer. Take your Bibles or open your Bible app to Revelation chapter 17 and chapter 18. We'll, we'll actually pick up at the end of chapter 16. We're in the, in the last two chapters in this entire section about judgment on earth, which have centered around three perspectives on how God judges, three cycles of increasing intensity in judgment. The seals, the trumpets, and finally, the bowls of God's wrath. And as the seventh bowl of wrath is poured out, and the voice from the throne, the lamb on the, th the throne exclaims, it's done. Suddenly and, and, and abruptly, this jarring image comes onto the screen that opens our eyes to what it is that is really done with these bowls of wrath and why it needed to be done. The seventh bowl is dumped out in chapter 16, verse 19. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. And God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. In one statement, we discover that Everything that has happened since the beginning of chapter 6, the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls, everything has had one focus, one target, Babylon. God remembered Babylon. This is not something in addition to the bulls. This is a summary of it all. To remember is not just a mental awareness kind of thing. It's the fulfillment of a commitment. God remembered the great city. And all of God's wrath, his settled opposition to evil is focused on one thing, putting a final and total end to Babylon. And then for these two chapters, more than two chapters, actually all the way to chapter 19, verse 5, we have this, this scene, a final picture in this room in the gallery called Judgment on Earth, a double-page spread in the album called The End of Babylon. Two overall questions as we read these chapters, why is all of God's wrath focused on Babylon? How does Babylon suddenly fit into this story? Why does it need to end? And, and what does that mean for me and my story? That's the first question. And number two, how does the end of Babylon call me to live in hope? 
So let's talk about that first one. Why, why is all of, all of God's wrath focused on Babylon? How, how does Babylon fit into the story and what does it mean for me and my story? Short answer to that last part, it means everything for me, a lot. It brings clarity. I need to think about choosing which story I want to live in and how to live in it well. If you know the story as John does, this vision is not a surprise. It's actually an encouragement. It's good news that God remembers Babylon. He's actually seen it coming, as we'll see in a minute. Because in remembering Babylon in a negative way, God is actually remembering me in a positive way. So let's talk about Babylon. Most obviously, Babylon, for God's people, was the nation the empire that took over the known world and took them captive for generations. That's a huge part of the storyline of the Older Testament. Several years ago, we worked our way through the book of Daniel, who, who was one of those young Israelite leaders taken captive by Babylon and whose prophecies about Babylon are fulfilled in this book of Revelation. Babylon the Great. Babylon, the invincible, the beautiful, towering over all ancient civilizations in technology and progress. In the Old Testament story, Babylon is the nemesis of the people of God. Babylon symbolizes all human forces that come against the people of God. The introduction to this vision in Revelation chapter 18 summarizes the significance of Babylon in the story, what it represents in the story, and why it's the focus of God's wrath. Let's read the first six verses of chapter 17, and we're going to spend most of our time focusing on this section. Two statements in verse 1 that tell us all we need to know about Babylon. Chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Babylon, according to verse 1, there's two things that we need to know. Number one, she is the great prostitute. Actually, verse 5, the mother of all prostitutes. And number two, she sits by many waters. Those two statements summarize all we need to know about Babylon. Everything in the next two chapters will focus on these two statements. First of all, let's think of that first one, who sits by many waters. To, to understand this summary, we need to know a little bit more. We need to know how Babylon came into the story. It's actually very early in God's story. It's, it's at the end of the, the introduction to God's story. In Genesis chapter 11, Daryl Johnson just recently published a book called The Story of All Stories. He talks about our human need for a story. 
And in the introduction to his book, he says, thank God, God himself has told a story. A great cluster of stories in the 66 books of the Bible. And the key to the whole story that these 66 books tell is the first half of the Bible. Two halves. Not, as we might suspect, Old Testament and New Testament. The first half, he says, is Genesis 1 to 11. The other half is all of Genesis 12 to Revelation chapter 22. The story that begins in chapter 12 with the call of Abraham and Sarah and then walks through the history of Israel leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ and finally to the new heavens and to the new, new earth. That story only makes sense, he says, when it's heard in the context of the story in Genesis 1 to 11, which, he says, is the story that makes sense of the rest of the story. So how does the first half of the story end? Turn to Genesis 11. Genesis 11 is a high point that is actually the low point, the bottom. We might think that the fall of humanity is the low point, but it's not, actually. After the fall, there's this journey of increasing violence and alienation and division and debauchery and then the mercy of God, and then more of increasing violence and debauchery and division. And finally, in Genesis chapter 11, that account of humanity building a city and the high point, a tower, we're told in verse 2 of Genesis 11 that people were moving eastward. Eastward in the Bible indicates moving away from something, away from a center, usually from God. They gathered together and it says that they decided to do two things. Verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city. The first city on record. Remember that. And number two, a tower that reaches to the heavens. The first skyscraper. They called it that. It reaches to the heavens. It also gives a very clearly stated purpose for the city and the tower. Verse 6, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Naming was a huge thing in the Bible and in ancient cultures. To name something was to have authority over something. When God created Adam, God names Adam. Adam does not name himself. God names Adam. Adam names the animals beginning to do what God put him there to do, to have authority over all creation under God. This act of building a city, building a tower to the heavens, was not about humans trying to get to God on their own. It was about humans declaring they were replacing God with themselves. They would be God for themselves. It would be their story. They built for themselves a city to make for themselves a name. God, we are told, steps in and confuses their languages and they spread out over all the earth. And we are told that the city came to have the name Babel, which is really Babylon. In the Akkadian language, it sounds like the word that means gate of the gods, which is what they thought of themselves. But in the Hebrew language, it sounds very much like the word confusion. Genesis 11, the end of the introduction, 
to God's story describes the origin of humanity, formally, unitedly declaring their independence from God, making their own world apart from God, to make life work apart from God and take over the story from God. Babylon symbolized with a tower that reached up and into the realm of God that humanity is organizing themselves to get rid of the need for an idea of God and ultimately taking on and taking over and taking out anyone who tried to bring God into the picture. That is the setting for God stepping in and starting over. The very next chapter, Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to move out of that city. And God, through Abraham, lays the foundation for what? For another city, which eventually became tangible on earth as Jerusalem with God supposedly supposed to be at the center. But Jerusalem was only a picture of what is to come in the last chapter of the book, the new city. Two cities, Babylon and the holy city. But the only way that the new city can come and be forever is if Babylon, the Babylon factor is taken out. When we define wrath as we did last week as God's settled opposition to all that is evil, all that is in opposition to God, it's Babylon that has to be taken out before the new city can come down. Babylon becomes a great empire that actually makes life miserable for Israel for many years and and actually takes Israel captive for generations. Babylon has to go. But let's come back to the first phrase that summarizes Babylon in our introduction. She sits, says John, or sees John, she sits by many waters. What does that mean? Well, all of the great civilizations were built on the water, the sea. Babylon, at its smallest, was on what is now called the Persian Gulf, but eventually spread to the entire eastern seaboard or to include the entire eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean. Just as importantly, the great river Euphrates ran through the center of Babylon, which as we saw last week in chapter 16, verse 12, in the pouring out of the sixth bowl of wrath, the Euphrates is dried up, which gives John a clue that God's wrath is all about Babylon. Babylon was on the water, but so was Egypt on the water, the other great nemesis of God's people. And so too was Greece, a huge empire to take over after Babylon. And so too was the Babylon that was current in John's day that was trying to take out anyone who lived by the story of the God who created and claimed the right to name Rome. One of the key things John is to know is that Babylon keeps resurfacing. She sits on many waters. She keeps coming back. Babylon never disappears. We are still, in some ways, living in Genesis 11. I still want the right to name myself. I'm still susceptible to believing I can choose my own story or thinking that my story is just about me and simply using God to validate and affirm and confirm my story. Do you know why this is so encouraging to John? Because in John's day, Rome, the Babylon du jour was at the zenith of its glory. 
It looks like it's going to take over and go on forever, like it's going to obliterate God's story permanently. But Jesus is showing John, no, Babylon is still here in Rome, but Rome too will go the way of every other Babylon. After Rome, there will be another and another. She sits by many waters, but that will not stop me from writing my story. Babylon has to go. You see, there, there really are only two cities, two stories. Babylon, my city. Babylon, I name myself. Or Jerusalem, the holy city. God calls me and names me. For creation to be restored, for everything to come together, there can and there will someday be only one city. But this introduction also says something else about Babylon. Not only does she sit by many waters and keep coming back, she is the great prostitute. Babylon the great is the great prostitute. In verse 5, the mother of all of the prostitutes that keep coming back. What, what does a prostitute symbolize? This is not an indictment, a, a marginalizing statement about someone who has been victimized and driven into prostitution because of poverty, because of abuse. This is more, as we'll see later, about the nature of the human condition that creates the environment for Babylon, for prostitution to exist. The prostitute is one who lures people who are susceptible away from their covenant, from loyalty to their true story, to their true love. The lure of a prostitute is the promise of a satisfying, fulfilling, exciting experience, a need that is not being satisfied, a desire is that is not being fulfilled by loyalty to a person who is loyal to you. Was that not the trick of the serpent in the beginning? The dragon who is behind Babylon? Babylon the Great was seductive. It was exciting. It was intoxicating in the experiences it offered. But in the end, she owns you. For the city of God to come fully and finally, the spirit of Babylon must be destroyed fully and finally. The serpent, the dragon, the ultimate cause will be dealt with. But first, the human spirit and human structures, the human systems that are Babylon, that allow the dragon to seduce and destroy, have to be dealt with. Those chapters on, on, on the fall of Babylon, the great city, and how it fits into the book of Revelation makes me love the very simple and clear outline of the book of Revelation by Eugene Boring. The first three chapters... God speaks to the church in the cities, the cities that represent Babylon. Chapters 4 through chapter 18, God judges the great city that is causing those churches to struggle. In chapters 19 to 22, God delivers, bringing down the holy city. When we choose which story we want to live in, we need to choose wisely because in the end, there are only two choices. The story that will end and be destroyed eternally 
or the story that will lead to thriving and will last forever. Babylon or the holy city? Which one is it? We won't go into detail on a lot of stuff in this chapter, and here's why. What is Revelation? It's an instruction manual on how to live in hope in a fallen world, a world in which the Babylon factor is still very real and very powerful. This revelation of Jesus Christ is not meant to be a crystal ball. It is not a book that we are supposed to read and say, oh, here, this guy must be that character in the book. This means we must be at such and such a point in God's timeline. At some point, there will be historical figures that will be the ultimate representatives of these symbols. But that is not the point of the vision. The important thing to know is what does Babylon represent? Why does it have to go? And will it ever be dealt with? And where do I fit in? We've talked about that. Yes, God will remember Babylon. It will be dealt with fully. And finally, this, the, the second thing we need to know, though, is what do I need to know to live in a world in which Babylon is still very much a factor? How do I live in the hope? You see, John's concern, Jesus' concern from the beginning of the book is not really about Rome, the evil empire of the day, or of us being able to identify these bad guys. John's concern is that Babylon is something that can happen to me. I am always in danger of being seduced by the Babylon factor. So let's turn for the rest of our time to that second question. How can I live in hope knowing that Babylon's toast? Or, or to put it a better way, how can I choose and live well in the only story that ends well? There are two statements John makes in this vision that brings it home for us today. One bring it home statement in each chapter. Chapter 17 has one. Chapter 18 has one. Would you underline these and highlight them and come back to them regularly? Chapter 17, verse 9. In light of the fact that Babylon is still alive and well and will keep coming back, John says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The New English translation says, this requires a mind that has wisdom. What kind of wisdom? Well, wisdom to see Babylon for what she really is and does. So I don't get dis dis distracted and, and destabilized and, and detoured and ultimately derailed by the Babylon factor. How is it that Babylon distracts and destabilizes and detours and derails me? You got to know that. I think especially as we read how Babylon came into the picture through the serpent in the garden and then the spirit of Babel, I think John Ortberg is right when he says that what we fall for, what we are programmed to fall for is the false promises of Babylon. The Babylon factor that influenced us is the promise I have it in my power to give you what it is you really crave. The unseen reality of Babylon uses three very seen groups to offer her false promises. And, uh, and John talks about, John sees those in, in chapter 18. The spirit of Babylon is behind 
the leaders of the powers of this world. Chapter 18, verse 9, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. The kings of the earth, political power, human government. Folks, God's people are not going to bring in God's city by force or by vote. In the end, all human government becomes corrupted by Babylon. And when Christians bet everything they have on political power, we end up being corrupted by that very power. The next group of people that get corrupted by Babylon and corrupt us is, verse 11 of chapter 18, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. The merchants are those who, who make money off us, who convince us we need something else that money can buy to be happy. And then chapter 18, verse 17, talks about the sea captains who are the ones that deliver the goods the merchants want us to have, whether it's tangible goods or ideas. Folks, we live in a day when everything is bombarding us with false promises. Babylon is alive and well. We do not run our own lives. We are so influenced by false promises. And in order to have the wisdom to see those promises as false promises, there's another key that John gives us in this vision. Why is it, how is it we get sucked in by false promises? Chapter 18, verse 14. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. Look, what your heart really wants, you're not getting. I have it in my power to give that to you. There's a story from a number of years ago that at the time was, was somewhat shocking, but as we know now, it was just a precursor to the kinds of things that are coming out everywhere today. Woody Allen, who... Uh, was a prominent actor and movie director, left a wife for her stepdaughter who was less than half his age. And do you remember his rationale when he was confronted about that? He simply shrugged off any concern about his actions with one phrase, the heart wants what the heart wants. What John is saying is that we desperately need the wisdom to see that that is how Babylon gets us. That is our Achilles heel, the fruit you longed for. That word longed for, we've, we've seen before. Peter warns us about it. Paul clearly tells us about it. James, it's, it's the word epithumia. Thumia, which is desire, epithumia, over desires, desires we can't control, desires on overdrive, desires that are beginning to control us, feelings we can't get rid of that we allow to control us because I can't change what my heart wants. Babylon, the prostitute, exists because I am susceptible to being distracted, destabilized, detoured, derailed by controlling desires. Desires that come because I know I'm not living the dream I was created for as the image of God. And Babylon can lure me into thinking it can offer me what I lost. And the line that comes out of my mouth that is a sure signal 
that should be a sure signal to me that I'm in danger of not operating out of wisdom and have fallen for, or am in grave danger of falling for Babylon's trap is, I should know what is best for me. Really? What should come to our mind at that point is, you know what, I need to be very, very careful if I think I know what's best for me, because most often that means I'm allowing my epithumia, my feelings, my dominating desires to rise up and control me. Am I operating out of God's wisdom or am I allowing Babylon to prey on my desires and lure me into its false promises? Are you asking yourself that question? Hebrews 12, which talks just like the book of Revelation about endurance when life gets tough, challenges us this way. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, People who show us the life of faith can be run. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, trips us up, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So the question is, do I recognize my areas of vulnerability to Babylon? That's the kind of wisdom I need. If I was to allow myself to get distracted, detoured, destabilized, and ultimately derailed from the race God has, has for me to run by some Babylon factor, lulled into a life that is less than spiritually f- flourishing, do I recognize where it is that I have the greatest potential for Babylon to get me? My greatest vulnerability? What keeps coming up as a driving desire that is threatening to control and dominate me? Is it a a desperate need to be loved? The, the, The desire to be affirmed and recognized? Is it a a position of of authority I feel I have to have or I have to hang on to? The need for recognition? Is it is it a sexually rooted desire? Or as I heard this week from somebody. What is the if only in your life that's starting to dominate your thinking? If only I had this, I would be satisfied. Living in a world in which Babylon is still very, very real, that's the place where wisdom begins. Will I choose the false promise of Babylon or remain true and loyal to the one who chose me and died for me? Two things I need. Because the Babylon factor is so real and alive and perhaps more powerful today than ever. Number one, wisdom. And number two, in chapter 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Come out of her. There are times we give into Babylon, whether it's because we don't have the wisdom or just have given up on enduring. The voice of our true lover does not stop. The voice of the one who suffered for the Babylon factor in me, who covenanted his everlasting love to me and died for me. His voice begs me, Come back, 
Come out of her, my people. The first call is a warning to not succumb to Babylon. Don't give in and give up to her, no matter how great the pressure is. But when we do, and he knows we will, when I am willing to admit that I fell for a false promise, the overwhelming pressure of the Babylon factor, I don't have to keep living an it-is-what-it-is kind of life. A, the heart wants what the heart wants existence. As long as Babylon is still around and alive, the voice of Jesus is still calling, will you come back? To me, I am the only one that has loved you with an everlasting love. I know you have longings that will never be satisfied fully until the new creation comes. I so much want you back. But you have to come out of Babylon. Give up on the false hope. Won't you come back to me and walk with me in my way until that new creation comes and all of your desires will be fulfilled fully? And forever, let me wrap up by coming back to the photo album story of our son's life. LaDonna made three copies of that album. One copy for our son, so as he was choosing the story he would live in, he would make a wise choice and know the story into which he belonged. The second copy she made for us, so that as he was gone, we could remember some of the great times, and also remember that he was part of our story. But unbeknownst to me and to our son, as a woman with the heart of a mother, LaDonna had ordered a third copy, not for our son when he lost his. It was a copy that she hoped she would someday be able to present to the woman who gave him birth and who gave him to us with a desire that we would be able to provide for and to point him towards the story that would end well. And what a great day it was to have the chance one day to meet her, to show her that album and tell her, by God's grace, we delivered on the job you gave us to do. Folks, Jesus is looking forward to the day, as we'll see next week, where, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians, he can present us to himself as his bride, radiant, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. But to get there and stand there, we've got to deal with the Babylon factor in us, have the wisdom to see it and the courage to come out of Babylon, hostaged, not by our desires, which are so easily deceived by Babylon's false promises, but hostaged by the hope of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the clarity of your truth truth that faces us for who we really are, that cuts through everything and exposes the desires of our hearts, and truth that also exposes the desires of your heart to give us a way back to you, to give us a story to live in that will ultimately fulfill all the longings of our hearts forever. Lord, today, help us to 
to be willing to humble ourselves and to be courageous to see ourselves and the Babylon factor we so easily fall into. Grant us the ability and wisdom to see your grace and to see the glory of your love and the beauty of your way to be wonderfully and fully captured by your hope. In the name of Jesus.